Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. Now to Isaiah 52. Verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you very much indeed, Thomas. Um, before we look further at this uh, quite incredible passage together, let me pray for it. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and the, well, the eyes of our hearts uh, to understand in a clearer way today the wonder of this passage and what it points to. Uh, thank you as we continue to plot the trajectory of your 
rescue salvation story through the Bible. Uh, help us to see more clearly with a deeper sense of wonder how it all fits together and how it all ultimately is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that move us to a deeper trust in him and joy in him as we continue on life's journey, ultimately to the new creation. Amen. Well, um, we're continuing our overview Bible series, and we can see here this uh, helpful diagram which uh, summarizes what we're looking at in the kids' talk, although in a little more technical detail. Uh, but of course, here is the, the God's people living God's place under God's rule, but the fall happens, they rebel, but God makes promises to Abraham to once again call a people for himself who will live under his uh, rule in God's place. Uh, they go through, uh, they are given the law, they are uh, freed from Egypt, they come to live in the land, they're the kings, they're Solomon, but of course, as we saw in the kids' talk, uh, things start to decline after Solomon. And so we have this line of decline where the people experience the results of turning their backs on God, uh, disintegration, uh, disorder, ultimately death and uh, decline. And they are conquered in various stages, firstly by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, uh, and they ultimately are uh, dispossessed from the land. But we've also been seeing, of course, that the prophets have, um, and the prophets particularly in this time, have uh, a twofold message. It's a message of judgment because of the people's sin, but there's also a message of restoration beyond the judgment. And so we have this twofold message in the prophets, the prophet of, uh, the prophets bringing judgment, but also this building line of, um, which counters this line of decline of the, the message of hope. And that's what we've been seeing as we've been working with some of the previous prophets. We've uh, looked at Ezekiel, of course, and we saw with the prophet Ezekiel, uh, if you remember, God promises to deal with all the things which assail his people, the enemies without, uh, which afflict them, and the enemies within, their poor leaders. And he promises, doesn't he, that he will, will himself one day come to his people and be their leader, the shepherd king. He promises a shepherd king. Uh, also through Ezekiel we saw that God promising that he will wash his people from their sin. Uh, he will resurrect them to new life. And he will reunify his people that are shattered and dispersed in the diaspora. Uh, then we saw in Isaiah, and we, we're still in Isaiah of course, uh, God has whispered words of comfort to his people. Uh, we saw back in chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Uh, we saw that he said the time will come when their sin has been paid for. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed when he comes to rescue his people. And we saw from that, that picture of the highway uh, which brings the Lord uh, to his people. Uh, we've seen in Isaiah chapter 11 that God himself will be his king. It's that wonderful uh, passage which is often, uh, which is in Handel's Messiah. Uh, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Uh, God is promising there that he will send a king who will rule over his people. And we saw in Isaiah 11, the reign of this king will bring about a cosmic peace. Uh, and wider in Isaiah, we saw this renewal of the whole creation is envisaged. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Uh, it's a peace which is otherworldly. And it all comes with the coming of this king. And we saw last week that these promises are underwritten by the great God. Uh, the second half of Isaiah chapter 40, we saw how great is our God. The God who is incomparably great and wise and powerful. He is the one who holds, if you remember, the, the earth's oceans in the hollows of his hand. And we are encouraged to believe that this God can fulfill what he's promising. So we're moving on to consider now, more particularly, uh, the latter chapters of Isaiah. Particularly chapters 40 to 55. 
And the focus of these chapters concerns what will happen when God comes to rescue his people from exile. And a mysterious figure is introduced in that first passage we had read to us from chapter 42, verses 1 to 7. Uh, He's introduced as the servant of the Lord. Here he is again, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Uh, This servant is the one who will rescue God's people from captivity. And in chapter two, verse, uh, 42, verse 6, God has the following to say to the servant. Uh, and notice the nature of the mission that the servant is given. Uh, verse 6. Uh, addressing the servant, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So who is this servant? Well, one candidate is that the servant is the nation of Israel herself, because uh, throughout the prophetic writings, she's often referred to as the servant of the Lord. It can't be the servant. Israel can't be the servant because, of course, the whole point is the servant will rescue God's people which are in exile, which are in slavery. How can Israel rescue herself? Uh, The second candidate for the servant is somebody who's introduced as Cyrus. In chapters 42 to 48, uh, this guy, Cyrus, is introduced. Uh, Look at chapter 45, verse 13. God says... I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, Incredibly, uh, this is fulfilled 150 years later. Uh, Of course, the Persian king named Cyrus conquers Babylon in uh, 539 B.C., And Cyrus releases all the Babylonian captives, uh, not just the Jews, but all of the people who were subject to the Babylonian rule and conquest. And he allows them all to return to their home countries, including the Jewish people. And we're going to look next week at the book of Nehemiah, which uh, records what happens when the exiles return to Jerusalem. So you see, in one sense, Cyrus is God's instrument of deliverance. But is he the servant Of Isaiah chapter 42. Is he the one who will accomplish this glorious rescue foreshadowed in Isaiah 40? Well, I'd put to you there are two reasons that Cyrus cannot be the promised servant. Uh, Firstly, the servant of Isaiah 42 has, we're told, uh, God's Spirit on him and he delights, uh, God delights in him. But in contrast, Cyrus doesn't even acknowledge God. Uh, Isaiah 45. Verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name, speaking about Cyrus, and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. God in his sovereign will would use a pagan king to release his people from slavery. But Cyrus is not the promised servant. He is a servant, but not the promised servant of Isaiah 42. So who is that servant? 
Well, 700 years later, a man called Jesus is attending a Sabbath service in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he is invited to do the Bible reading. And we pick it up in Luke 4, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And incredibly, he reads Isaiah 42. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's all about me. I'm a servant. And of course, no spoiler alert is needed. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, foretold by Isaiah. Jesus is the one who performed the greatest rescue in human history. The Isaiah 42 passage is the first, actually, of what are called four servant songs in the prophetic book of Isaiah. Uh, today we're looking at the first, Isaiah 42, and the last, Isaiah 40, uh, 52 to 53. And these servant songs reveal what the servant will do and what he will accomplish. Now, if you recall, uh, Isaiah had already assured the despairing exiles in Babylon that the day would come when their sin would be paid for. Isaiah 40, verse 1, just to remind you, God, uh, through Isaiah, says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. But the question is this, how will the sin of God's people be paid for? And that is the overarching concern now of this fourth servant song. And that's what we're going to look at in our remaining time together. So the first thing we see in Isaiah 52 to 53 is that God's promised servant will suffer. Up to this point in Isaiah, all the promises of rescue have carried an overwhelming vibe of triumph and glory. But now in this fourth servant song, a very different note is struck. One of the main characteristics of this servant is that he will be subject to awful Suffering. A mortifying array of suffering is outlined at mental, spiritual, physical, and ultimately death. Uh, we see he will suffer mentally. He will be rejected and despised. Uh, look at uh, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There were, of course, times when Jesus did enjoy great popularity. But he was also widely rejected by his friends, even by his family. And not only will a servant suffer mentally, but also physically. Uh, look at verse 5. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon 
him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so it was that Jesus' rejection culminated in the appalling physical suffering of his torture and his crucifixion. But there is more. The servant will also suffer spiritually. He will experience great anguish in his relationship with God. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul. And of course, on the cross, the suffering of Jesus is bared for all to see. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is suffering that spiritual anguish of being cut off from the Father for the first time in all eternity because the sin of the world is being poured on him. And ultimately, the suffering servant suffers that ultimate fate of death. Verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. At verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Verse 12. He poured out his life unto death. Jesus, of course, is the suffering servant. Uh, Jesus is the man of sorrows. And yet Jesus' suffering would have a purpose. The suffering of Jesus would be the means by which God's people would be rescued from their sin. And that's the second thing we see in this amazing passage. God's promised servants will suffer as a substitute. Uh, we often compare people to animals, don't we? Uh, we say, uh, he's as strong as a ox. Good. Let's try the trivia quick questions a bit more. Yeah, she's as wise as an owl. Great. Excellent. As cunning as a fox. As busy as a bee. Great. And negatively, uh, he's as stubborn as a mule. That's right. As mad as a What a cut snake, could be. Uh, in England it was a March hare, but maybe don't have them down here. Uh, slippery as an eel, that's right. Greedy as a... Greedy as a... Greedy. Pig, thank you, thank you. I was worried there for a minute. Blind as a... Blind as a bat, that's right. Proud as a... Sorry? No, that's the pride of lions, that's the collective noun. Peacock. There we go. There we go. All right. Sorry. Okay. Well, okay. That, that exercise was, had a point, believe it or not, because um, God actually compares us to an animal. Uh, God compares us, and it's not very flattering, to sheep. That's right. Uh, it's not because we are warm and cuddly, but because actually we are wayward. Uh, we've gone astray. Uh, sheep have, of course, this infuriating tendency to wander off, verse 6, and that's what we are like. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Uh, each of us has turned to his own way. Uh, instead of going God's way, uh, we have wandered off and we've gone our way. Uh, we've turned away and we've done it not just as individuals but also as a human race. And of course the punishment for going our way, the punishment for rejecting God and his good rule over us is ultimately death. It's death. The wages of sin is death. 
Physical death, ultimately, that was not part of the good creation in the, in the beginning, but also spiritual death. The anguish of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the following verses in Isaiah, another animal is introduced, a lamb. Uh, we are like sheep that have gone astray, and yet the servant is like a sacrificial lamb which was led to the slaughter. Verse 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his suffering and in his death, Jesus took on himself our sin, our guilt, our punishment. He was our substitute. And the idea of substitution is scrawled all over this passage in Isaiah. And look at verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. At verse 8. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Verse 12. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see the point? Uh, do you get the feeling that maybe this is something that God does not want us to miss? And it's something we shouldn't miss because it's of vital, vital importance. The servant's suffering and the servant's death should have been ours. Uh, we are the wayward sinners, not him. Uh, verse 9 makes clear he was innocent. Uh, verse 9 again. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Remember, the criminal crucified alongside Jesus recognizes that Jesus is, in fact, innocent. Uh, Luke 23, verse 41. He says this. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our de deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And even Pilate recognized this at Luke 23, verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And as the writer of the New Testament letter of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 4, verse 15, we have one and in the context, a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He is innocent. But it is precisely because he was the sinless son of God that he could take our sin on himself to pay for it. Now, the idea of uh, substitution was not a bolt out of the blue. This concept of substitution had been at the heart of God's dealing with his people for centuries. Think back to the Passover in Egypt, which the Jews then celebrated every year thereafter, or supposed to. God had provided a lamb to be killed in the place of the firstborn, so they could be saved. Think of the annual day of atonement, what the Jews call Yom Kippur. In that ceremony, a goat is sacrificed in the place of the people. And of course the high priest takes another goat and lays his hand on his head 
and confesses over it all the sins of the people to bear their iniquities and then for it to be sent into a remote area. So you see, the idea of substitution was nothing new. The Old Testament sacrificial system was based on it. What was new was that the sacrifice was a person and not an animal. In the end, the sacrifice had to be a person. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 4 says this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, the point is this. An animal and a person are not equivalent. It has to be like for like. To take the place of people to represent us, the sacrifice had to be a real person, a man of sorrows. Fully God, but also fully man. Uh, In the Olympic Games, uh, to represent your country, you have to be from that country. Uh, Needless to say, you have to be a person. Now, a cheetah taken from the local zoo would no doubt be pretty nippy in the 100 metres, but it would be disqualified. Uh, To represent us, there had to be a man who suffered in our place. And that is what happens in the Incarnation. God leaves heaven, the Son leaves heaven to do the will of the Father. He takes on human flesh. He lives the perfect life, a sinless life, and then he dies the death he doesn't deserve to die. And he does it as a substitute for me, and he does it for you. The Lord Jesus Christ lives his life. He wears the colors of humanity. He runs for our team, for team humanity. And as a man, he suffers our punishment to bring us back to God. And what we see as we look further at Isaiah is that this was all part of God's plan. Uh, This was all part of God's doing. Uh, Sure, we know that, of course, wicked men crucified Christ and they are accountable for their deeds and their decisions. But in the end, the crucifixion was God's doing. It was integral to his salvation plan. God the Father was directly involved. And we see this in Isaiah. Verse 6 again. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And as he did so, the Father and the Son who had been eternally united in love, were for the first time ever alienated from each other. And that was the worst part of Jesus' suffering, the anguished cry of abandonment on the cross. Uh, Some people today uh, wrongly assert that this is a case of cosmic child abuse, that the crucifixion is some way God uh, inflicting the punishment of us on a helpless victim. But of course, that is not the case. Jesus is the Son of God who comes willingly according to the Father's will to take on us himself, our punishment. Uh, In the salvation act on the cross, the Father and the Son are working together in unison. Verse 7 of Isaiah. 
Uh, he was oppressed and afflicted. Uh, yet he did, not, he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is in silence, so he did not open his mouth. He comes completely willing, working in tandem with the Father. And his silence speaks volumes. Just as the good, loving shepherd willingly laid down his life for the sheep. That is what he is doing. And the third thing we see in this amazing passage in Isaiah is not just that the servant will suffer, not just that he will act as a substitute, but that his suffering will succeed. His suffering and his death, of course, were not the last word. Uh, if they had been, uh, maybe we'd be left wondering, did this substitution for us really work? Did God accept it? Now these days, uh, when you've probably had this experience recently, when you go to those newfangled uh, ATM machines uh, and you've got maybe some cash and some checks to deposit in it, uh, you feed it into the machine and it sucks them in with a remarkable speed and they disappear from view. And there comes this worrying point where you think, will I ever see them again? And will they truly register in my account? And of course, you're waiting there, and, but suddenly out pops this little piece of paper. Well, you can see it on the screen if you want and take a photo with your camera. But there it is, the receipt which confirms the transaction and all those notes that have been taken away from you and the checks and even the amounts of the checks. How utterly reassuring. And so it is with Jesus' death on the cross. If Jesus had just disappeared into death and into the tomb, we'd have been left wondering, did his death really work for me? Uh, was full payment made for sin? Has the death of Jesus been effective as a substitute? And with the death of Jesus and the payment uh, going in, it effectively disappears into the tomb. But in his resurrection, the receipt effectively comes out of the tomb. And that is what Isaiah foresees. Uh, verse 10. Uh, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Now, it must have been a real head-scratcher for the first readers of Isaiah. After the servant had been killed, how could he see his offspring and prolong his days? But 700 years later, of course, it becomes plain. And the apostle Peter himself says on the day of Pentecost this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And the Lord's servant is not just raised to life, but he is exalted. And that's where the passage in Isaiah begins, in Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Uh, where else are these terms used in the Bible and indeed in Isaiah? 
the term exalted is used of God himself. Isaiah 53 verse, uh, 33 verse 5. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. And so do you see what a contrast from despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, to high and lifted up and exalted and reigning in heaven. And in verse 12, the risen, exalted Jesus is pictured as a victorious conqueror returning in triumph from the battle. It says this, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, when I watch my country's cricket team playing on TV, uh, when they win against all odds and chase down a seemingly inassailable lead of 359, of course, I jump up and down with utter joy, and I say, we won, we won. And yet, of course, I did nothing. I just sat on the sofa with the remote, eating Pringles and thinking, is it too late to call David Walder? But I did win because my heroes were representing me. When Ben Stokes won, I won. And I share in the joy of the victory. And maybe you know that feeling too. Or maybe you don't. Jesus is the conquering hero. Jesus wins the battle. He defeats sin and he defeats death. And he shares the spoils of his war victory with his people. And because of his victory, we enjoy the spoils. Peace with God. Verse 5 of Isaiah. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Uh, he was declared in the right with God. Verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So, a few words in conclusion. Uh, it is said, of course, that truth is stranger than fiction. And, of course, it is. And this is a remarkable message. Uh, no wonder Isaiah 53 begins with this. Verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It is, of course, utterly astonishing. But everything this passage predicted has now actually come to pass. It has happened in history. Uh, the servant of the Lord has come as foretold. He has suffered and died for sins as foretold. He has been raised and exalted as foretold. He bore the sins of many, as it says. But this, of course, has relevance for people throughout the ages. And it has relevance for each of us here today. He bore the sins for many. Are you one of them? Because either we accept that Jesus paid for our sin, or we pay for it ourselves in eternity. A few years after Jesus' ascension, an Ethiopian official was returning home from Jerusalem reading this very bit of Isaiah. And what happens is recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, this Ethiopian official doesn't understand Isaiah 52 and 53, 
And so he, somebody comes up there, uh, Philip, and explains the passage to him and explains that that it's all about Jesus. And of course, the, effectively, the scales fall from this Ethiopian's eyes. And there and then, he responds to it. He puts his trust in Jesus and is baptized on the spot. You see, the message that that Ethiopian official heard that day is the same one that we have heard this morning. And if it was good enough for that man, it is good enough for each of us today. And indeed, why not today if you've not yet responded to Christ? And for those of us who do trust in Jesus, uh, if we can reverently tweak Churchill's famous line, never in the field of spiritual conflict has so much been owed by so many to one man. What a wonderful privilege to be one of the many. Is it not moving to go back through these verses and to personalize them? When we do that, our hearts are stirred as we switch the word R for my. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities, for my pride, for my selfishness, for my failure to love God and other people. And that's what he's paying. It's for me. It's personal. What is the most loving thing that anyone has ever done for you? Has anybody else ever loved you that much? If we trust in Christ, we are one of the many. Those whose sins he has borne. And of course the point isn't to make us feel guilty but to feel grateful, to have our hearts stirred with gratitude and joy. Amazing love, noble sacrifice, the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays and my death he dies, that I might live, that I might live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. And it indeed touches our hearts as we realize that the Son of God died for each of us here. He died for me to bear my sin so that I could be your friend and I could be reconciled to you. Thank you for Jesus. Please, we pray, may the joy of trusting him as our Savior be the joy shared in the hearts of everybody here. And may it be a joy which continues every day of our earthly lives as we wait for his return as we look forward to the day when he will finally inaugurate the final stage of that rescue, when he will cleanse this creation of all sin and all death and everything that spoils it. Help us, therefore, to live with people as people of perspective and people of joy in the Lord. Amen.